Welcome to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and foster care. I think almost universally, most adoptive parents on some level dread their children's teen and tween years. And while I actually really like those years, I appreciate that they bring challenges and their challenges that some of the challenges are specific to being adopted because uh, kids at that age are uh, questioning and learning and understanding in ways that they haven't before. So today we're going to be talking about parenting adopted tweens and teens. We're going to be talking with Katie Nafsker. She is a psychotherapist that specializes in adoption. She is a transracial adoptee adopted from Korea herself, and she is the author of a great book called Parenting in the Eye of the Storm, The Adoptive Parent's Guide to Navigating the Teen Years. A really great book and a great topic. You're going to notice a little difference in sound. I am traveling this week, and when I travel, I can't do a new recording, uh, and so you're going to be hearing a re-air of a show. This show is wonderful. And I really, really wanted to bring it back to you. So uh, bear with us if the sound is not quite as good and enjoy the interview. Welcome, Katie, to Creating a Family. Thank you so much. Today we're going to be talking about a Adoptive Parents Guide to Navigating the Teen Years. And Katie, it's based on a book a, a book that you wrote, Parenting in the Eye of the Storm, The Adoptive Parent's Guide to Navigating the Teen Years. I've got to tell you, I really, really love this book. Uh, it was uh, both practical, it was empathetic, it was heartfelt. And this is coming from me, and I, am, have, I have experienced parenting for teens. In fact, I am now officially no longer the parent of a teen, uh, since my youngest is, is now, has just turned out of the teen years. So, I uh, I know of what I speak about the teen years, and so I I uh, I truly enjoyed this book and thought it uh, it was a real asset to the the adoptive parent uh, library of books and one that I think uh, parents should uh, should add to their own personal library. Um, I wanted to start at the beginning of the book. You gave an analogy that really struck me. It was about coming in about how coming. You were trying to help us as adoptive parents understand in some ways what it feels like to be an adoptive person. And you used the analogy to coming in just slightly late to a movie theater. Can you, can you tell us that for, for everybody now listening? So, um, but yes, the way, the way I began the book was to talk about the experience of walking into a movie 20 minutes late and having the movie have already started, and that just that experience of not knowing what happened in the movie and being aware that everyone else has already has already been there from the beginning, and trying to figure out how to navigate that as an adoptee, and and um, you know I think I think what was important for me was also to talk about the experiences that are wordless, um, and that that is mm-hmm. one of the many experiences that I I discuss in the book that. Um, doesn't often get put to words in real life. That's something that's an internal experience for adoptees and hard to describe, which is also why I think I probably end up using a lot of uh, metaphor. Yeah, and I like that. You did use a lot of metaphor, and I uh, I particularly appreciated that. And the thing that struck me about about that analogy, that metaphor, uh, and I think it was it was addressing the uh, some of the many losses uh, embedded in just inherently embedded in adoption, and that was the the loss of continuity. And what struck me, and, and honestly, I didn't remember uh, that the analogy uh, only said twenty minutes late, because in my mind, it was it was important that you didn't have to be very late. That it was only you you just had to be a little late, and you're still wondering in that. What happened at the very beginning? You know, did something we know as the movie progresses and you don't quite get something, you kind of think back. If I had been there for the first five minutes, ten minutes, would I understand this piece? And that really struck me because it's one thing if you come in halfway through a movie, then of course you don't expect to to get it. But the rest of the world would assume that as an adopted person, that if you were adopted at a very young age, that there wouldn't be any of, of this of this lack of continuity, but in fact there is, or at least that's how I, I how I interpreted your your analogy there. I think you're right, and I think um, the rest of the world also tends to think of five minutes as five minutes, 
And, uh, you know, so that was also part of the metaphor, you know, of um, having other people sort of try to reassure the person of, oh, you didn't miss mm-hmm. much or, oh, you know, exactly. nothing important happened or, you know, this, that, and the other. And, um, and having that gulf of empathy or lack of empathy there, too. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. That, and trying to downplay it. Oh, no big deal. I mean, you know, gosh, you just, you know, basically just missed the very first part. Not a big deal. When, in mm-hmm. fact, it does color how you view the rest of the movie, and it does color from an adopted st- person's standpoint how they they how they view their life. Um, one other thing, another quote from your book that I liked was, "Being adopted is not just an isolated event; it's part of one's identity that is constantly evolving and changing." And I wanted to ask about that, particularly in the teen years, the part where you talk about both of them, both the the, the uh, it's being as part of one's identity and the fact that it's constantly evolving. So how does adoption play into the identity of an adopted person? And 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 let's talk about the, both children who were adopted at a young age as well obviously as children who are adopted at an older age. And I think it's clearer to us. The answer is far clearer when we think of a child who's been adopted as a uh, as a school age child, or uh, or even as a tweener or a teen themselves, it seems more obvious. But what about as a as a person as a person who was adopted either as an infant or as a toddler or preschooler or something of, at a young age? Well, um, there, there's a quote in the book that um, a teenager told me, which was, "How can you know where you're going if you don't know where you've been?" And yeah. I think that. That includes a lot in it, and and I think it kind of speaks to the adoption identity piece. That that it's it's not just something that happens to you; it's something that you continue to wrestle with, and that it means different things at different points in your life. And that for him, what he was speaking to, and what I speak to later in the book, which we make it to, about envisioning the future, is that um, it's difficult to know your future or to have a sense of feeling empowered about your future if you don't really know where you came from. Yeah. Actually, let's jump into that, too. Okay, you talk about that parents need to develop four skills to help their kids through their teen years. And in particular, you're speaking of parents need adoptive parents and adopted teens. And I'm going to read off the four skills, and then we're going to talk about all four of them. Um, The first one is uh, learning to unrescue your child. The next one is setting adoption-sensitive limits. Uh, The third one is having connected or empathetic conversations. And the fourth one is helping your teen envision their future. That's the one you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. All right, let's 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 talk about I was particularly interested in the, the first one, uh, not rescuing your kid. I think that is a fascinating one. Uh, I think that it, it's a very, um, I think in particular right now, it, it's an interesting one because the rage is uh, is uh, atta- uh, attachment parenting. We talk about it. We have a large uh, f- Facebook support group, and uh, it is uh, I'm, you know, 15 times a day somebody is talking about some aspect of attachment parenting. And it occurs to me as I was reading the, the, the section that there's a fine line, it seems like, between what we're calling attachment parenting, and quite frankly some of attachment parenting looks a whole lot like helicopter parenting, um, and something that that uh, adoptive parents seem to, uh, all parents, quite frankly, but but particularly adoptive parents, in their desire to create attachment and security when their children are younger, um, are maybe having a hard time understanding the distinctions of of how to shift when their children are teens. Are you seeing that as well in your practice? I am, you know, and, and you you um, talk about ad- attachment parenting, and I also think of just in terms of development of children that the latency age, um, which is sort of more of the elementary school age, is also more about stability and information and a positive relationship with your parent, whether it's adoptive parent or just a non-adoptive parent, and that everything um, sort of totally changes once the teen years come into play. And it's actually almost can feel like the opposite where, hence the storm of feeling <laughs> like, the you know, it's unstable, there's no continuity, you never know what, you know, is going to happen the next day. And, and that, you know, how can parents change and adjust their parenting from 
working on the attachment to working on preparing them for the future and preparing and also helping them um, stay connected with you over the long haul, but not necessarily in that particular moment that they're that they're in with them. Oh, I like that because you're right. We do worry, uh, and perhaps as adoptive parents, we worry more about wanting to make certain that I heard a parent say one time, and it was it was so um, it just it struck a chord with me. She talked about as her child was her uh, leaving for college, and she said, "I hope that the bond is strong enough that." that he will come back. You know, that she wants him. She she was aware that he needed to launch, but she wanted to know, and by come back, she did not mean physically come back, but, but that be emotionally still connected as an adult. And I do think uh, adoptive parents worry about that. Uh, and I think it influences oftentimes how they parent in their teen years. Sure. You know, uh, the teen years are such a high-risk time, too, and so there there are valid and understandable reasons why parents would be have a lot of fear about a lot of things, you know, whether it's losing the connection or whether it's just fear of their safety. And, again, that's what the teen years are all about, that, that some of that stuff gets questioned and tested with, like, safety and um, whether it's emotional health or physical health and, and um and so there is a dynamic that tends to play out, which really can backfire in the teen years, um, where parents, uh, adoptive parents, let's say, um, find themselves intervening in times when you know um, the teens really need to learn through life. And you know, if we think, if we take ourselves out of the parent role for a second and think about our own childhoods and our own teenhoods. I think if we were to think back, most of the things that we, most of the times that were the highest learning times for us were also the times when we struggled the most and and may have even felt abandoned a, a little bit. And what I emphasize in the book is that feeling abandoned is different than being abandoned. You know, that, that you know, you can still help your child feel empowered or your teen feel empowered and not abandon them. Mm-hmm. And not rescue them. That by that it's not the the opposite of of, of taking care of is not abandoning. Um, you don't uh, that by allowing the allowing life. I often have said through my children's teen years that that my best role is to step back and let life teach them because they're going to learn more from life um, than mm-hmm. me trying to teach them. Um, and and but the but the transition of 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 not wanting our children to fail that. When our children are even in their latter elementary ages, I think we as parents often are wanting to step in because we don't want them to fail. And how much of that is tied up into our own needs and not our kids' needs? I think I think it can get a little I think it can get a little confusing, um, you know. And if we think back to the adoption narrative, where you know, although adoptive parents weren't technically the rescuers, they were the ones who picked up where the birth or biological parents left off. And so there is kind of an internal contract I think for adoptive parents within themselves that they will always be there and that they will never um, kind of do the same things that um, were already done to their teens. And I think that can sort of um, sometimes cloud um, the the better judgment of adoptive parents. I mean, when I talk to adoptive parents, often they do know that they're doing it. They they describe themselves as rescuing their teen all the time and, and just have trouble kind of getting out of that dynamic. Right, because, uh, but what does that do to a uh, a young person who, being rescued, what does being rescued do to a um, to a, to a, uh, a teen, a young person who is who is in the position of being the rescued person. Yeah, well, I, I think it can can sort of reinforce the question that adopted teens have, whether it's conscious or unconscious. Do I need to be rescued? Um, I, I know that adoptees sometimes um, have a negative reaction to the idea of being rescued, but I, I think that's about something a little bit different. Um, I mean, the truth is they did. There was intervention that was needed in order for them to have the family that they deserve. And, um, you know, I think that part of the story can really impact and um, sort of mess with the identity of adopted teens. And so they find themselves wondering, you know, am I someone who needs to be rescued or not? You know, the right. the message that we send them is, 
you know, these th- these things happened to you. They weren't your fault, and there was nothing that you could have done. Um, and that that message doesn't work that well in the teen years because really the message in the teen years needs to be, um, it may not have been your fault, but it's it's now your responsibility to, to to take active, empowered steps in your own life. Right. And, you know, one of the things that occurred to me, you didn't talk about it in the book because the book is really directed towards teen years, but it's not the moment that your child turns 13 with a teen after the, their age that these that we need to start thinking about these things, which is one of the reasons that I feel like this book would be particularly helpful for people to read, not just in their child's teen years, but also in their their latter elementary school years, their tween years, and even slightly before, because I think that the the philosophy that you're talking about actually would be better to be started slightly younger so that it's not an abrupt shift immediately when your child on your child's 13th birthday. No, I think I think that makes a lot of sense and and um and I you know actually a lot of parents that have talked to me about the book and who are um reading the book are parents of younger um kids and and I think they want to be proactive and and to start really making that shift over time. You know, it's it's hard to change. It's yeah. hard to change your behavior as a parent and and especially during a time that is so tumultuous anyway. Um, and so it is. It is nice. It's not necessary, but it is nice um, to be able to read it um, when the kids are a little younger. Yeah, I, I I completely agree. You know, one of the things that that um, I throughout the book, it occurred to me when I was, and one of the things you did that I enjoyed, um, you gave uh, real life examples uh, throughout the book, which just makes it a more interesting read. And one of the things that was interesting is, as I'm reading these examples, that often it's hard to distinguish our need as a parent from our child's needs, our need as a parent to make our child feel better from, versus what our child really needs at that at that moment. So we do all we can to assuage their fears or their concerns because we need them to feel better. And what they really need is for us just to listen and hear their fear or their pain and, and not immediately try to make it all better. Um, uh, and there was a really poignant uh, time you talked about, an uh, example you gave of a 13-year-old who had been uh, internationally adopted and she had been left outside of a child welfare institution. And you didn't say for how long or whatever, but she was old enough at that age to realize, and she was so upset by realizing that I could have died. Uh, And as a parent, of course, my immediate thought was, oh, but chances are good you were left there in in a time when you wouldn't have. There was some conscious thought. That would have been what, of course, I would want to say. But uh, you encouraged just to listen. And what you responded was, that must have been an awful feeling. Yes, and and um, and the other part of the example was that that was the one thing she hadn't shared with her mother, her adoptive mother, um, and they had a very they had and have a very positive relationship. And um, but um, it, it intrigued me that that was the one thing she hadn't shared, and I think it is because she suspected that her mother would not be able to cope with it, um, that it would just be too much for her, and. Um, and yeah, I think I think a lot of parents respond that way. That you know, oh no, sweetie, you know, look, look, you know, kids get taken care of. You know, someone loved you, and they made sure that, oh, you know. Um, but in fact, that can actually make the adoptee feel more guilty, more misunderstood, and then more protective of you as the adoptive parent because they are sensing that, you know, they feel like the parent can't handle the truth. Yeah. And I think that plays into why we often rescue our children, too, is that we don't want our kids to be in pain. We don't want our kids to, as I said before, face failure. We don't want them to fail their their class. We don't want them to get arrested. We don't want them to do any number of things. That uh, And so it is our uh, – but, but in some ways our rescuing is to make us feel better and, quite frankly, probably to make us look better in the eyes of the world, too. Yeah, well, right. No, I, I think that's really true. Um, I think about those turtles, because the way I talked about the unrescuing was the, the those baby sea turtles that go across the beach into the water, and, and mm-hmm. that some, some people tend to pick up the turtles and bring them by hand to the water. 
And um, and I think the reason for that is because they want to make sure that they get to the water. Um, but, in fact, what ends up happening is that they compromise the turtle because the turtle now doesn't have the strength to survive as well as they would otherwise. They need that walk in order to have their best chance. And, and I think that there there is a way that, you know, adoptive parents sometimes end up picking up their kids. And I think in part it's because they've already been through so much. You know, the ki- when yeah. when the kids came, they've already been through mm-hmm. sort of hell and back, you know, kind of thing. And yeah, so, exactly. um, so it's just, you know, you're already feeling like you couldn't protect them through that. And yeah, so um, you want to do your part now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They've already had a hard life, therefore it's my job to make their life easy now. That's exactly. my job as a parent. Yeah. If that's not our job as parents, though, then what is our job? <laughs> and so then we come back to the, the unrescuing that really our goal is to help them feel prepared and, and confident heading into the future. I mean, the, the tragedy for me, and this was maybe in a way one of the um, the inspirations for the book, was that parents were not that, – that, that young adults I, was, I saw were not prepared for the future, and it was in part because they were so protected and they were so reassured, and – then they were sort of thrust into young adulthood, whether they left home or not, and then they're not prepared. And then it can almost feel like another sort of form of abandonment, even though that's the opposite of what the adoptive parent mm-hmm. was going for. And and so that it was, I think, something that was really painful for me and something that I really was driven to to try to address. And I think so many adoptive parents, I would say, let's say most adoptive parents, are doing everything they possibly can and um, and I think it's just it's a matter of a mindset shift to think ahead as opposed to, you know, thinking about the past and protecting and, and all of that stuff. And knowing that our real role is to prepare our children for adulthood to live away from us, to individualize from individuate from us, to to move, you know, to to go out in the world um, where they don't need us, which is actually quite as a the uh, the uh, parental obsolescence is really hard um, as a parent to accept, but it is what I believe our role is. Doesn't make me always like it. I might add. Absolutely, and and you mentioned the um, the the insecurity. I think for adoptive parents that once they leave, they might not come back, and and mm-hmm. so there can be sort of a again whether it's conscious or not, sort of a clinging, um, mm-hmm. a clinging that happens, and um, and that that can be just you know a little bit stressful for the for the teen um, sure it puts an un- it's an unfair burden um they you know it, it seems to me it would put an unfair burden on a teen whose job is to move out into the world and and, and tackle it you know and and to have the confidence to do it and to know that when they screw up that they can dust themselves up and and dust themselves off and get back up that's what we yeah, want and, and, and yeah go ahead yeah, no, and and so much of the book um, has to do with coping. You know, the language that we're using, the the things that we're having. You know, the life events and and the way that life shapes, you know, who we are and responsibilities. That we're really learning to cope with adversity. That it's not just about removing those feelings of feeling abandoned. And clearly, we can't remove the past. And so, you know, we're really trying to help them cope with adversity um, because we know that it will happen. Yeah, and probably absolutely. when we're not there. <laughs> absolutely, it's part of it. You can't. We won't always be there, nor should we be. Um, but uh, that's. And I think I wonder too how much of this is some. Not all adoptive parents, but many, um, come to adoption from infertility, and uh, having long struggled to become a parent, uh, and are highly vested in being a parent. Uh, Thus, the idea of ultimately working yourself out of a job that you've coveted for a long time and may and probably are enjoying is 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 a hard is a bitter pill to swallow. Yeah, and I, I think about you know we you and I just mentioned the thing about um, that the adoptees have been through so much, but I think you're also talking about you know that adoptive parents have all already been through so much that so many are you know did come through the road of infertility and and um that that does i think that can add a heightened sensitivity to um when things aren't going well or when it feels like things aren't going well 
Yes, I think I can remember there was a story, you know, um, one of the things that can sometimes happen is that in the throes of separation, let's say senior year um, of high school, is that, you know, the adoptee, some adoptees never speak to their parents or don't say a lot to their parents, but those who do tend to pull back and they don't say as much to them. And the way they frame it is confusing for the adoptive parent because they'll sort of say it in an angry way. Um, like, I don't tell you anything anymore. You don't know about my life at all. And so it does make it sound like um, the adoptive parent is at fault. And what will happen is that the adoptive parent will come in to me and say that I, I think I failed as a parent because my daughter can't talk to me anymore, and I've spent you know, all these years trying to help her feel comfortable opening up to me, and now she says that she can't do it. And, and in fact, she is grappling with her own um, feelings of separation in that it, it it's more grieving. It's not so much that, um, that it should be different. We're talking today with Katie Nasker. She is a psychotherapist specializing in adoption and an adult adoptee who was adopted from Korea. The title of her book is Parenting in the Eye of the Storm, The Adoptive Parent's Guide to Navigating the Teen Years, You are listening to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and infertility. This show is underwritten by the Jockey Being Family Foundation. Since 2005, Jockey Being Family has been a leader in providing post-adoption support to strengthen adoptive families for successful futures. Jockey Being Family connects adoptive parents and children with education and resources to help prevent failed adoptions. They believe one failed adoption is one too many. One of the things that happens in adolescence is sexual maturity. Our bodies change. We become sexual beings. Um, and how is this, uh, our, our maturing bodies, how is this threatening and scary to some adopted teens? How does adoption play into that? I mean, there's, there's obviously... Issues we all have, you know, having come to terms with our changing bodies. But how, in specific, it might this be different for an adopted team? I think it is pretty evocative, and and of course that's true. That there, that we always have that question in our mind: you know, is this adoption, or is this teenhood, or is this something else mm-hmm. entirely? And and the way that um, has been helpful for me to think about it is, you know, what is the inter- intersection between adoption and teenhood? And so, you know, in a sense, we're looking more for the ways that both of those overlap each other, um, not so much which is the one and which is the other thing, cause, because, of course, there is so much overlap. But, but one of the pieces about uh, the adoptee is that um, during the teen years is that it, it, it deepens the complexity of the birth parent story. You know, that mm-hmm. once they hit puberty, once they, um, you know, start dating or even start thinking about the future or even start fantasizing about have the, having, their, having biological kids or adopting kids or having any kind of family of their own, whatever that might look like, it, it changes the way they think about their birth parent, that they can now identify with their birth parent in a way that they couldn't before. You know, before it was different. In the latency years, it was more about facts maybe feelings like they missed them and wanted to find them or maybe, you know, anger and, and various things. But it, it wasn't so much that they identified with them. And now as a teen, they can put themselves in the position of the birth parent, and that's extremely evocative. And it, it really spans all of the teen kind of developmental um, dimensions of teenhood, right? Because um, cognitively, too, as we know, um, that that teens often go from more concrete to abstract thinking. So um, they're more kind of interested in the gray area. And so that also changes the story because now they're not just asking, why did you give me up? They want to know the nuances. They want to know what happened. They want to know their personal story, not just the story that everyone gets. Um, You you make an interesting point, too, about having a baby is a way to have a biological connection, um, and and for some adopted, for some adoptees, it may be the first time they've ever had a biological connection to someone, and it's a way to more closely identify with the birth parents, or even a way to have a different ending to a situation. Um, so, it makes me wonder, and you may not know the answer to this question: Is the pregnancy rate higher for adopted teens than non-adopted teens? 
Ooh, that is that is a good question. I I should I I'm interested in looking into that. But I think you're right that um, that adoptees there is a longing to close that gap. You know, to yeah. kind of that there you know there was that 20 minutes or five minutes. You know, before the and and that they, that they you know they just want to close the gap. Um, and so I I think that's true. But and then also just to speak about the moral um, the morality of. Um, the birth parent situation for adopted teens that, you know, as they move into teenhood, they are also thinking their their morals are developing and what's right and what's wrong and, and thinking in more depth about that. And so they are also looking at the birth parent situation or the biological parent situation with more questions about how could she do this um, and mm-hmm. how could this happen and is this, you know, what is my moral stance on this too? Yeah. And how could somebody make this decision? Uh, and do you see a difference in your practice or in the research that you've read between uh, kids who are teens who are in an open adoptive relationship, so have some information of or even contact with their birth family, versus those in a closed adoption? Yeah, I, I think um, it's so interesting because those who are in a close adoption or um, those, let's say, who are internationally adopted and um, never knew their birth parent and may never know their even the identity of their birth parent, let alone meet them, there is some jealousy of the open adoption, you, you know, and, and I would suggest that, you know, those who have an open adoption, uh, you know, in a way might look at international adoptees as, Maybe a little simpler because you don't have that ongoing relationship to contend with, and you know, and that you know, if you choose to search, that's sort of in your arena as a choice. Um, but yeah, I think I think there's a lot more anguish in terms of the abandonment piece for open adoption. That you know, when when for international adoptees, when the birth mother does not come to search, it means something different than when your you know birth mom is in the next neighborhood over and you see them in the news, and you know that they're around, and you know that they're choosing not to have contact with you. Um, so I, I think it's, you know, it's it's much more in reality, and in that way, in, in a sense, it's easier, but in a sense, it makes it a lot harder. What about in cases where you do have contact with your, uh, your birth mother and birth father, uh, where the teen knows them as a person, may even, you know, see them a couple of times a year? Does that... We we tell everyone that the advantage one of the advantages of open adoption is it allows uh, for your your child and your adolescent to have less questions. Do you see that actually playing out? Yeah, I think I think there is some peace of mind in knowing that that you have some um, sort of control in the relationship and that you have that you have kind of a role alive, ongoing role in the relationship. So and just certainly I support completely support open adoption um so that's that's you know definitely my bias about that um well and i think sometimes the reality is if as our as our uh children move into their teenhood and and start having more um nuanced questions and start seeing more of the gray that they can ask somebody they've got they can call up their birth mom and say well but other you know other 20 20 year olds were able to keep their child why didn't you? Why weren't you able to keep me? As opposed mm-hmm. to just wondering it, um, there's actually a person that can answer that question. Um, there is. I mean, you know, the conversations that that happen are are sometimes not. You know that there's a lot left unsaid. Um, but yes, um, but absolutely, and I think you know, not that this, not to generalize, but you know, often adopted boys or adopted teens who are boys. Um, do sort of challenge their father, um, their birth father, in their mind about what might have happened to lead to the situation. And, you know, it's not uncommon for um, there to have been some form of violence or abuse, um, if not mm-hmm. directly relating to the child, then also just maybe just in their life. Um, and mm-hmm. and that's, a, that's, it's interesting, they're in each other's presence, but sometimes it's still challenging to to find ways to speak about it. You know, that's a really, that's a good point, because the scenario that I painted, which is a uh, a child calling up and saying, well, you know, a really, a, not just a personal question, but really a challenging question um, to a birth parent about, you know, why couldn't you do it when other people can? 
is is not an easy conversation to have. And although it is possible, I think your point's well taken that that possible is one thing, but whether that would happen, particularly in the teen years, um, and whether both the teen or the birth parent uh, would be open to that conversation is a whole other issue. Yeah, and I I, and because it's so sensitive, I I guess in my experience they haven't been that. Uh, you know, it hasn't gone well um, those mm-hmm. those conversations, and that there's a lot of defensiveness, and sometimes there's a little bit of lashing back um, on the part of uh, the birth parent, and and um, so you know, I think we, I think as an adoptive parent, that's how we would res- like to think that we would respond. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. if we were in that situation, and yet, you know, of course, the, the role is so different. Um, yeah. Well, and the truth is. Any of us, if we're being challenged, tends to react if we're not very careful and from a defensive posture. So, yeah. So the key, would, of course, would be hopefully that that we could uh, uh, couch uh, coach our uh, our teens before that conversation to help them think through how to ask it in a way that will not uh, elicit defensiveness. Uh, you state that every issue with your adopted teen is a family issue, and I really thought about that. And it, That was in the section of the book where you're talking about the tremendous impact that parents have on their teens. But i got to tell you, most parents of teens do not think they have so much impact. Yes, I know, I know. That's what's what's fascinating, right? It is fascinating. So so much of this book um, came from my... my, my work experience with adopted teens that I, I just have seen so many of them and, and had so many conversations. And the, that was one of the striking pieces is that um, they're very, very impacted by their adoptive parents. And as I said in the book, more than anyone else in their life, I would say. Um, yeah. and, and I think when, you know, sometimes, uh, as you're mentioning, um, adoptive parents don't realize that. Yeah, because our teens are telling us generally that we, telling us and showing us that we, our our wisdom, our pearls of wisdom, um, are really just not as um, as in, not only impactful but really are not welcome. It was interesting to me how often though you talked about that that the teens truly did care about what their parents thought and and uh, and it really mattered to them. They care. They care a lot about what their parents think, not necessarily uh, about the pearls of wisdom. You know, in, in terms <laughs> yeah. of like the, <laughs> you know, the, the advice. They don't necessarily pair it to me, um, but um, but they do. <laughs> they are very affected by um, any tension in the relationship, and they're very very upset when it's not going well, which is also fascinating because again you don't see that I'm you know as you're describing you don't see that so much at home but as I mentioned in the book oftentimes the sort of most emotional moments in session are about when they're talking about their parents yeah and we see that in our support group when uh, adoptees talk about their parents it's yeah they're about it's it's very true it's it's the most emotional and it's of course we're talking with adults generally and it's in the support group not I wanted to talk to you about, um, and I thought this was an interesting, uh, you talk about bringing up adoption in the teen years. And and what struck a chord with me is that, you know, I have certainly in our educational material with, with when we're talking about talking about adoption with younger children, we specifically say that just because your child is not talking about adoption does not mean that they don't have questions because a lot of parents take the attitude of, I'll talk about adoption if the kid brings it up, but if the, you know, if the kid doesn't bring it up, I'm not going to talk about adoption because that's me you know, shoving it down their throat or whatever, or more likely because I'm uncomfortable with it anyway and don't want to talk about it. But you talk about how that's not necessarily the, the best approach in the teen years. So how, if your child, if your teenager is not bringing up adoption, is it, as a parent, uh, is it our responsibility to occasionally bring it up just so that they know it's a topic that we're still open to talk about? You you can occasionally bring it up. I, I think in my experience, um, the, the reasons that they're not bringing it up are not related to that. Um, they're not not re- they're not coming into session and saying, um, "Well, my mom doesn't feel comfortable talking about it, so I'm not b- going to bring it up." 
um, they're they're not bringing it up for other reasons, and and I think in part because they're exploring their identity and they don't want to just be, let's say, you know, Stephen. They don't want to be just an adoptee whose name is Stephen. They want to be Stephen who happens to be an adoptee, and so uh, they don't yeah. always want that to be at the top of the list. Um, mm-hmm. And I think the the other piece about that and with with the with the whole bringing it up thing is that what I was finding was that adoptive parents were bringing it up as a way to attempt to connect with their adopted teen when mm-hmm. things weren't going well um, as, a, as a sort of bridge uh, um, and that that wasn't really working. And what I mentioned in the book is that um, respect comes before connection and that if the teen does not respect their parents, um, then it's, it's really not even fair to try to ask them about kind of deep personal um, topics, because that has to be, you have to get to that organically, I think, especially during the teen years. Yeah, uh, and I, that's a, such an interesting point. It's a way of, it, it could be brought up if you're care, if you're not thinking about it carefully, you may bring it up as a way to try to connect on an emotional level um, with your teen. And one of your suggestions, which I thought was a great one, was one way to bring it up is to not ask how they're feeling about it, but to describe your feelings, I think it was that section of the book where you talked about. Um, and it was funny because I've done this. Ex- I had this exact conversation with one of my teens, and that was, it was on uh, um, after a birthday, and I said, you know, I always think about your birth mom on your birthday, and mm-hmm. I didn't then say, it, the uh, didn't put the pressure on them to see if they did as well. And I will say that uh, that particular child, you know. Didn't, didn't I always talk about it as throwing the ball out and see if they want it, but giving them the option of catching it, and that ball fell very flat. <laughs> Did not yeah. want to catch it at all. Okay, <laughs> glad you're thinking about it, Mom. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think there are a couple of reasons for that, too. One is uh, not to put the pressure on, and then the other is to try to guard against projection, um, that, you know, that um, – Teens are relieved when they know that we as parents or caretakers or what have you, therapists, um, are owning our own experience and not kind of projecting our experience. You know, there's that other example in the book where, you know, that mom talks about worrying that her daughter will feel abandoned when she goes off to college. And in truth, it was really the mom who mm-hmm. was concerned about feeling abandoned when her daughter was off to college. And um, and so there's a lot of relief when um, when parents own their own experience, because it is different. It often is very different um, than the adopted teen experience. And so um, teens are really looking for that. And, and that really leads to a little bit more respect, a little bit more trust. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So you talked uh, about the four skills that adoptive parents need to develop to help their kids through their teen years, and, and I would say also to launch them into adulthood. And the first one we've talked about some is uh, not rescuing their child. The second one is setting adoption-sensitive limits. Do you think adoptive parents in particular have more trouble in setting limits than non-adoptive parents? I do think so, and, of course, it's a general it's a general um, feeling. But I think that um, because of the deprivation that um, so many adoptees have suffered through, um, I think that, Maybe unconsciously, or maybe without even being aware of it, um, that we that adoptive parents equate saying no with deprivation, um, and mm-hmm. so you know it makes it harder for us to set a boundary, um, like no, you know, the kitchen is closed after 9 p.m. or you know, you know, you know, just very. I, I could there are various examples, but um, sure. and so yeah, I, I do think I do think it's especially difficult and. And, you know, often parents will say things like, look, they've been through so much already, or I couldn't take that away from them. Um, and, and yeah, I, I think it's, it's, it's extra laden for them. Um, but, but, but just as important, and what do you mean by adoption-sensitive limits? So there, there, are certain, there are certain dynamics in the adoption piece um, which I think are really important. One of the, the issues that comes up a lot is negotiating. And, you know, certainly there's a lot of talk about the pros and cons of negotiating in general. It's not just an adoption issue, clearly. But um, but for adoptees, it does trigger certain feelings that I think are best not triggered that way if possible, you know, where um, adoptees were sort of left to be dependent on the kindness of strangers and not 
um, just having it go the usual way of starting a family and having a family and having that same family. Um, and so when they start negotiating with the parent, um, first of all, they have less respect for the parent if the parent is allowing this to go on. But also there can be kind of a begging, uh, an experience for adoptees as if they're sort of begging. They feel like they're begging for something that um, they should be entitled to or may be entitled to. And um, the begging can really kind of lead to some rage that um, that is not necessarily directly expressed. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is that um, that that you know that we talk about this in the with younger children about throwing out the "you're not my real mother" card, and and uh, that that's used as a way of of diverting parents from setting a limit, and and that could happen, of course, in the teen years. But there's also other things. Teens are also sharp enough and wise enough and nuanced enough to be able to throw out, try to, to divert parents from setting limits by introducing adoption-related topics. So how would you handle that uh, if your kid throws out and tries to muddle while you're trying to set limits, tries to introduce the adoption topic? And this is a, this is also such a big challenge because um, the adoption conversation and the setting limits conversation should not mix because when it mixes, it dilutes both. So um, so when your teen brings up something about, well, you never cared about me anyway, or why don't you trust me, or, you know, something something that mm-hmm. is sort of personally hurt, you know, suggesting that he or she is uh, personally hurt, or, you know, maybe you, you shouldn't have even adopted me, or, you know, something. And mm-hmm. um, and then, um, and this is really challenging for parents, but this, this is really um, better for the teen, is that's not what we're talking about right now. Mm-hmm. We're talking about mm-hmm. your curfew, mm-hmm. and um, it really protects. It not only helps you with your authority, but it also protects the adoption conversation. Because once you have that adoption piece muddled in, it sends a lot of different messages. You know, it sends a message to the team that they can use the adoption card not just with you, but with other things in their life. When things aren't going well, well, look, I'm adopted. You know, so I can't do this job, or you know, I just you know, and um, and it ends up being kind of a crutch, which you know, again, we do not want because that thwarts um, feeling empowered and responsible. Yeah, and it, I I love the concept that as parents, our 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 job is to empower our kids, that we want to create empowered human beings, adults, uh, and I love that concept because I think that. Just that word "empowered" is such a uh, to, be, to be redundant, powerful, <laughs> but it is. Um, all right. So another one of the uh, of the topics that you say that we the skills that we as adoptive parents need to develop to help our adopted teens is we need to learn how to have connected, empathetic conversations with our our, our kids. What do you mean by uh, an empathetic conversation or, or connected conversation, either one? The, yeah, the, the connecting conversation is, is one where um, the, the teen and the adult in the conversation, let's say the adoptive parent, both feel better at the end of the conversation, um, which is actually pretty challenging to do with teens. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that it's, it's just common for adoptive parents to start a conversation feel that it's going pretty well and then suddenly it falls apart and they aren't they don't really understand why and and those are the conversations that I often experience in my office too where it starts a certain way and the parent has certain hopes about connecting or getting a certain point across and then it just falls apart and everyone you know everyone in the conversation feels worse and then mm-hmm. they end up feeling a little bit more uh concerned about having more conversations about that um yeah, absolutely. And then you also get, you, then your frustration kicks in and you feel defeated you feel, as a parent, I'm speaking. And I'm sure as a, as a teen as well, um, they, they feel the same. Um, and that's not what we're, so, so what are some things that we as parents can think about in order to have empathetic conversations? And then I'm going to talk about some of the minefields because there's two in particular that just made me smile because I've been guilty of them. Um, so the, the, I think the, bit, the big challenge for adoptive parents and, um, is to 
access your vulnerability, your feelings of vulnerability in the conversation, not not to talk about it, not to talk about how your experience is similar or, you know, but just to to kind of recall um, a time when you felt equally vulnerable and to try to get into that feeling a little bit. And, you know, I think that that's one of the pieces of my being an adoptee, that I, I can access that vulnerability quickly um, in, in working with, you know, adopted teens. And so it's not that I understand them better than their parents. Usually I don't. But um, but it, it is right there. And once you're able to access your vulnerability, and not the kind of vulnerability that we use, that we find ourselves using as parents, I think that sometimes when we think we're heading toward vulnerability, actually we are still choosing a story that we feel pretty good about, you know, that we're not really going for the deep humiliation <laughs> of, you know, oh, something right that, that was just... Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, you know, we choose the protected parent story of vulnerability, you know. Um, and But when we can really get, get maybe just one level, one or two levels deeper, like that example I used in the book about the, the father and son, and the father talked about um, his reason for adopting was um, to because his father died. And um, and that that really served as a connection for the son, who was totally disengaged uh, before that. So when when you're able to access authentic, sort of authentic, unprotected vulnerability um, in a manageable way, the whole way you talk to your teen changes. You know, it's it's you know you don't you just say different things and you hear it differently and you're just automatically more empathic because you're not trying to change it or fix it or you don't feel guilty about it in the same way that you might otherwise. And so it does it does free you up a little bit um, to to help them feel less alone, which is really one of their biggest challenges is to that they feel alone. And some of the minefields, and one in particular, it, you called it the but sweetie minefield, and I, I, I hear it, and I've also, I hear it in others, and quite frankly, I've also heard it out of my own mouth. Let's say, for instance, your, your, your child feels ugly or stupid, and you, you go to them and you say, oh, but sweetie, you're gorgeous, can't you see that, or, or, you know, if your child is is expressing something that would indicate that they don't feel appreciated or loved. Oh, but sweetie, there are so many people who love you. Or if you're dumb, but sweetie, you're so your teachers, you're so smart. If you would just try harder, that blah blah blah. Why is that? I, I know why we as parents do it. We want our children to realize that they're beautiful, smart, and, and loved. But why is that not an effective way to go around uh, go about having them feel that way? Well, it's it's funny, you know. It really does make them feel more alone, um, and you know because it, it, they feel more alone, they feel more lost and misunderstood, and they definitely feel more disconnected from their parents. Um, and they also feel guilty because they're now they're now sort of sensing that their parents are not really tolerating, you know, their darker, sort of less attractive or, you know, um, less positive feelings. And they're also feeling kind of inadequate because they feel like, why can everyone else see something that I cannot, you know, seem to get to? It seems so easy for everyone else to love me. Why is it so hard for me? Which makes them feel Mm -hmm. even more alone and uh, even more sort of um, damaged and just, you know, like there's something wrong with them. So how should a parent, if, if your child is coming to you, uh, your teen is coming to you and saying in, in so many words that they feel ugly or stupid, what is, the, what, what is an empathetic response from a parent? And I, I just want to say, too, even though this may go without saying, but, um, but, but you know, when we're in the throes of parenting, sometimes it, it's helpful to say it anyway, that, that when we do truly empathize with them, it does relieve a burden for them, and you actually can start moving forward from there. Um, which mm-hmm. is interesting because that, that's not the way that we would maybe assume that it would go. But as soon as you're able to be with them and they feel like they have a witness, they feel less alone, then they're able to start to feel empowered and, and start to be able to take steps on their own to, um, to kind of uh, change the way they view themselves and change the way they think about their life. But So, one of, so there are a few things that I sometimes use um, – just in my sessions too, um, but also just in real life, I guess, um, that one is that um, you add on to whatever they're saying. So if they say, you know, 
um, yeah, I just feel like, no, I just feel like everyone else is prettier than I am. And you say, yeah, and that must be really hard. And that's really hard because you, you know, you wish that you looked like them or something. Um, mm-hmm. And so there, you know, if you can successfully sort of somewhat accurately, you know, add on to what they're saying, then um, they feel less alone. So there's there's that piece. Um, and then another way to add, kind of add into what they're saying as opposed to putting our two cents in or our encouragement or reassurance or what have you um, in is to add the, and why wouldn't you feel that? Because, you know, there are very few Asians around or there are very few this. And, you know, to try to provide kind of a context and validation of that they're not crazy for feeling that way. Um, that, of mm-hmm. course, it's totally understandable that they would feel that way given the blah, 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 you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, it just, it really goes a long way. Mm-hmm. Another minefield you talk about is the kind of, we will love you and we'll never abandon you minefield. And you quote mm-hmm. an adoptee saying, if my mom tells me she loves me one more time, I think I'm going to scream or, or whatever. And, um, okay, that's a hard one because uh, as parents, uh, and particularly as adoptive parents, we do want our kids to know that our love is forever and that we will never abandon them. So uh, why does this one backfire? Well, I think um, adopted teens worry that their parent is struggling with the separation, um, which there may be some truth to that. And so given that they are so highly attuned to their parents, um, they can sense all of those things in technicolor. So they just are very aware of every single thing their parents are feeling, which is unfortunate in some ways for the for the parents yeah. you don't you don't have anywhere to hide but um but yeah i think i think they're aware that the parent is struggling with the separation and so then they feel really conflicted about what they're trying to do you know because part of separation sometimes includes pushing away and sometimes rejection um and so they don't really know they're just sort of betwixt and between as to how to separate without hurting their parents so yeah but but why specifically for the conversation of we love you and won't abandon you, is it is it because it doesn't? If it was really there, the, the, if those feelings were really there, they wouldn't need to be stated so often. Is that part of the issue, or um, uh, why does that become an annoyance? Um, and I'm thinking specifically about, um, you know, it, it really, it, you know, well, I would say what I was thinking about was um, when parents say "I love you" or you know something before they have like give a consequence. Yeah, mm-hmm. like you're, you're grounded. I love you, but mm-hmm. you're grounded. You know that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, and it, it and it there are just so many nuanced things. You know, it it, it weakens the parents' authority. Mm-hmm. Um, it it reveals the parents' insecurity that they're doing the wrong thing. So it does tell the the teen that they're ambivalent and they're scared of the teen, which is also not what the teen wants. The teen wants to feel like their parent can handle them no matter what and is really kind of the authority in the in the matter, you know. Um, so mm-hmm. it, it does reveal a lot about the parents, and mm-hmm. and it reveals that the parents may feel just anxious about the connection and the, the attachment, which I think can feel like a burden for the teen. Mm-hmm. So and so the last of the skills that we as adoptive parents need to have is to help our children envision a future. Why is this important for adopted kids in particular? Obviously it's important for for all human beings to to realize that there is a a future for them. But why in specific did you select this as one of the top things for adoptive parents to develop? Well, it's interesting, you know, as I've um as I've worked with adopted teens, you know, one of the things one of the topics is of course the future and but whenever I would ask adopted teens, um they would have this certain dazed look. And it and it wasn't just dazed as in I don't really care, I can't think about this right now. It really was more dazed as in like I um just dissociate. You know, they they're almost not even able to stay in the room. Um, when we talk about the future. And so I found myself really thinking about, you know, what what are they up against in terms of um, trying to see their future? You know, given that the past is so hazy, um, it also makes it feel like the future is very hazy. And so they really do feel like they're sort of walking in the dark 
because they don't have the reference points that biological parent, biological kids have. And so they don't have a sense of what they're going to look like when they get older, what they what their strengths could be when they get older. And I know this from having biological kids now. You know, there is a lot of overlap. There, there is a strong genetic component to, you know, certain propensities and weaknesses and things. And so they're, they're definitely, you can sort of see the thread of, you know, what's going on and, and um, you can see what something might look like when you get older, you know, because you can see, oh, okay, that's how my mom is dealing with it. So then now I can blah, blah, you know, but adoptees don't have that. And so they mm-hmm. really are walking literally into the dark. And that is really terrifying for them. They have no idea. They're completely starting from scratch. Yeah. And, and, and so they need us as parents to to do what? How do we help them envision what their future would be? So there there are a couple of ways you and what I describe it in the book as is strength and style that you know they that they likely have strengths that the adoptive parent doesn't have and those are really worth mentioning not so much as a compliment or support because again we know that that can go either way um but more just as information um information that they really need that they don't necessarily have um and I think you know with style I think that has to do more with personality and giving them kind of feedback or input about their personality, like, oh, okay, you're someone who doesn't want to sit still, so you would never want to sit still in an office. And to really start to speak literally, to to put words to speculating out loud about their future, about, oh, okay, could you ever see yourself doing, you know, X, you know, this certain thing? Is that something you could see yourself? What would you like about that? You know, to kind of, um, you know, to start to sort of, shine a flashlight into the situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, you have a section in the book that I absolutely loved. It was uh, the chapter on race, uh, and particularly as an Asian transracial adoptee. It was it was very insightful. And you, we, we, are, we won't have time to talk about it in detail in this interview, but I, I wanted to hear some of your thoughts on uh, on the transracial experience, and, and of course you're coming from a from an Asian uh, as an Asian transracial adoptee, and you made some notes as to how it's different from the uh, black transracial adoption experience. Can you talk a little about that? Yeah, I think that um, that you know race is really hard to talk about, and because it is, there are so many minefields associated with race. But um, because my particular personal experience had to do with growing up in a pretty diverse Chicago community, and then um, also an almost all black school, high school, um, it, it was something that I really you know thought about a lot. And I think that the black experience and the Asian experience are somewhat different because of the stereotypes that are associated right. with each experience. You know, and mm-hmm. so, um, you know, th- anyway, I mean, I don't know if you, we need to get into the specific stereotypes, but... Um, but um, well, you can. We can go, yeah, just a bit. We yeah. won't go into it in depth. I, I recommend this chapter in the book, but do. I thought that was the, the it, I, think it's, I think it's spot on, and I think it is different. Um, so some of the stereotypes for, for Asians tend to be more what we would consider positive stereotypes. Right, the whole model minority, and and then right. you know Asians as a minority sometimes feel like the teacher's pet of minorities, which is not yeah. enjoyable. You know that doesn't really yeah. usually work well for most teachers' pets. You know, and and no. um, and then to be compared to to kind of be used as um, benchmarks for other minorities, I think just sort of compounds the issue. Um, right. But you know, I I I use the example in the book about um, my clinician friends and I were talking about. Um, just our experience with clients and stuff, and they two of them were African-American, the three of us were talking, and they were talking about how every time they see a parent, the parent goes through this sort of extensive explanation of how to handle their child, um, which I thought was really interesting given that I was a newer clinician and I never had a parent give me instructions on how to handle their child in a session. And these two clinicians whom I worked with were extremely experienced and senior clinicians, and so I, I just found it, intriguing and wondered how much race, I, I guess I, that was my bias, that race played a pretty kind of significant issue in that, linked to the um, the stereotype about intelligence um, 
or mm-hmm. or the the kind of extreme difference in culture um, in the black community compared to the white community, just that perception at least yeah so for a transracial adoptive parent whose child is in their teen years. If you, what are one or two things you would want them to know about how race and how their attitude towards race will impact their teenager? You know, I think that, um, that you know, one of the big things about the teen years is the, the kind of obsession about their, one's appearance, you know. And so um, the, because there's all this focus on one's appearance and because there's so much focus on belonging, fitting in, um, it can really kind of heighten the whole wanting to fit in piece. And there there just can be a lot of self-loathing about it. And, you know, the fitting in is a survival um, adaptation. You know, it's an understandable, you know, um, response to, you know, feeling alone and feeling kind of exposed or feeling different or feeling kind of marginalized in some way. Um, but, yeah, I think there can be a lot of emphasis on one's appearance. And so I think that adoptive parents you know, it does help if they're ready for that, even if it hadn't come up in the past. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Great words of wisdom. Uh, thank you so much, Katie Natsker, for being on Creating Family. This show could not and would not happen without the support of our partners. And these are agencies that believe in our mission of providing unbiased thorough education to both pre-adoptive parents as well as post-adoptive parents. We cannot thank our partners enough because truly this show wouldn't be happening without them. One such partner is Children's House International. They have a reputation for working in the best interest of children and supporting adoptive families while providing ethical adoption services. They have been uniting families for over 40 years and have found homes for over, get this, 3,000 children. They have programs in 12 countries worldwide, and they are licensed in Florida, Louisiana, Texas, Utah, and Washington. We also have Hopscotch Adoptions. They are a Hague-accredited international adoption agency placing children from Armenia, Bulgaria, Croatia, Georgia, Ghana, Guyana, Morocco, Pakistan, Serbia, Ukraine, and they also do international kinship adoptions. Katie, if people want to reach you by uh, website, do you have one? I do. It's uh, www.adoptiontherapyma.com. All right, adoptiontherapyma.com. Thanks so much for joining us today, and I will see you next week.